Hello and welcome to the weekly sermon by White Sulphur Baptist of Georgetown, Kentucky. We hope that you find this resource encouraging and helpful. You can also connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, but we would love to see you in person on Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. Thanks again for tuning in. All right, well, good morning, everybody. It's good to see you all. Uh, just a quick thank you for the breakfast that we had today. That was delicious, provided by one of our uh, Sunday school classes here. If you're new or visiting or watching online and we haven't had a chance to meet yet, my name is CJ. Um, I'm the pastor here. I'd love a chance to get to know you after service if you have a chance to stick around with us for a few minutes. Today we're going to be in the Gospel of Mark. If you have your Bibles or you want to pull up Google on your phone or however you want to find that, we're going to be in Mark uh, starting in chapter 14, verse 43, if you want to follow along with us this morning. We are continuing in our series entitled Good News for Hard Times, and we're actually right at the end of it. Next week, we're going to be concluding our series. We started this back in in February, and we've been working passage by passage through the Gospel of Mark. Uh, We said it was good news for hard times. It's good news because it's the gospel, which the word translated literally means good news for hard times because it was likely the first one uh, in the hands of early Christians facing persecution, facing suffering and, and difficult things. And so that's where we get our, the name of it from. But we've been applying that all along to our lives today in the different ways that we might face trials and temptations and suffering. The gospel of Mark is still good news for hard times. So that's where we're going to be this morning, continuing through that series and concluding here in the next couple of weeks like I like I said, uh, just really quick, uh, because we're going to be concluding soon next week, not next week, uh, next month, we're starting a series through Advent. So hope, joy, peace, and love leading up to Christmas. It's going to be kind of like a mini series uh, rooting each one of those things in the coming of the Lord Jesus. So in his arrival in the manger as a baby, that's what we celebrate around Christmas time. You can find one of these cards, one of these Advent cards over there on that white table. Grab a bunch of those. Use the, put one up on your fridge. Uh, you know, hand them out to friends, neighbors, however you want to use those. We have those uh, over there for you guys. So, all right, I am going to pray for us, and then we're going to get started on our passage this morning. Father, thank you so much for a day where we get to gather, a day that is beautiful weather outside, a day we get to celebrate baptisms and, and people making decisions uh, to follow you, that we get to celebrate lives transformed, we get to celebrate joy and hope, the, the kind that we can only find in the gospel, in the good news, that there is a Savior who came for us when we could not save ourselves. Father, I pray that today would just be a day of, of worship and rejoicing. I pray that the people that came in carrying burdens, whether they be emotional or physical, people came in um, just feeling heavy this morning, Pray that you would just give them some relief as they, as they sit here and as they hear the music and as they hear people sing your praises, as they hear the word of God read and preached, as they see baptisms take place, that you would just give them just a moment of peace out of their week. Something maybe even supernatural taking place in their hearts and their minds. Father, once again, I thank you for the gathered people of God this morning, that we can do this together and that we would remember what an honor and a privilege it is. I pray these things in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, so last week we talked about uh, Passover, right? So I'm not going to rehash everything, but last week we went all the way back to Egypt, and we saw how when God uh, led the Hebrews out of Egyptian slavery, he did so with a lot of imagery. There's lambs, and there's blood, and there's atonement, and there's a sacrifice, and all of that, we said, was kind of like overwintering seeds. Those seeds were planted, 
And then over thousands of years, they stayed in the ground until they began to sprout when Jesus came. And now we're approaching what we're going to call what is called the atonement. This is when Jesus actually dies on the cross and something actually happens. The sins of the world are paid for in his death. And that is accomplished. That is what has been foreshadowed throughout um, all of history since the Egyptian slavery. And now it's it's taking place. That's where we find ourselves this morning. But there's a couple of things that might be helpful for us as we go forward to just kind of lay some Groundwork, Like, why does this even need to happen? Why does, why does someone need to die to pay for sins? Why is blood involved? All of these things. And I'm going to try and give it to you in a way um, that, that's understandable, but also concise, okay, without making this uh, too exhausting for us. So, in God's justice system, sin is seen as committing a crime. You've either done or failed to do something. You, you've maybe thought something that you shouldn't have that would be, one of these things would be out of line with God's character or commandments. That's what we would say sin is. Doing something or not doing something that is out of line with God's character or commandments. And the more valuable the thing is that we sin against, the greater the debt that is occurred, accrued uh, from that sinning. So let me give you an illustration. Um, if I were to go out and get mad and key someone's Honda Civic, right, there's going to be a legal punishment to that. I'll probably have to pay something. Now, if I go out and I get mad and I key someone's brand new Ferrari, now that has much higher value, right? And so the, the legal punishment, the sentence for that is going to be much, much higher than for maybe the, the 90s Honda Civic that gets keyed, right? So the greater the value of something that is sinned against, the greater the debt that is uh, incurred because of that thing. This, exactly this, is why the atonement is necessary. Because God is, is infinitely worthy, right? He's infinitely valuable. You can't come up with anything more valuable. And so when we sin against him, which all sin, even if, we, if I sin against my wife, if I do something that I sh- shouldn't, that is a sin against her. But ultimately it's a sin against God because it's out of step with his character or his commandments. And so when I sin against something that is that valuable, I have incurred a debt that I cannot pay for myself. And that's justice. It is a just situation that I find myself in, even though it is a hopeless Situation. And this again is why the atonement is necessary because we, we need Jesus because Jesus is man. So he can pay for sins uniquely in a way that animal sacrifice couldn't in the Old Testament. But he's also God. And so he can exhaust that which is infinite because within Jesus, the God man is the infinite God. So he exhausts that which seems to be inexhaustible, which is this paradox and this beautiful mystery that we participate in. As Christians. And so when we place our trust in Jesus as the, the only one who could do this for us, our debt is cleared and we are welcomed home as God's people. And so the passage, as we step into it this morning, you can go ahead and turn there. It's verse 43 of Mark 14 is where we're going to start. As we step into this passage, those are the things that we want to have on our mind. That there is a, a legal proceeding that is playing out. That humanity has incurred a debt that it cannot pay. And Jesus has arrived to pay that debt for us. Out of love. And so, with that, we're going to start reading at verse 43. While he was speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, suddenly arrived. With him was a mob with swords and clubs from the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. His betrayer had given them a signal. 
The one I kiss, he said, he's the one. Arrest him and take him away under guard. So when he came, immediately he went up to Jesus and said, Rabbi, and kissed him. And they took hold of him and arrested him. And one of those who stood by drew his sword, struck the high priest's servant, and cut off his ear. Jesus said to them, Have you come out with swords and clubs, as if I were a criminal to capture me? Every day I was among you teaching in the temple, and you didn't arrest me. But the scriptures must be fulfilled. Then they all deserted him and ran away. Now a certain young man wearing nothing but linen cloth was following him. They caught hold of him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. They led Jesus away to the high priest and all the chief priests. The elders, the scribes assembled. Peter followed him at a distance right into the high priest's courtyard. He was sitting with the servants, warming himself by the fire. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for testimony against Jesus to put him to death. But they could not find any. For many were giving false testimony against him, and the testimonies did not agree. Some stood up and gave false testimony against him, stating, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with human hands, and in three days I will build another not made by hands. Yet their testimony did not agree even on this. Then the high priest stood up before them all and questioned Jesus, Don't you have an answer to what these men are testifying against you? But he kept silent and did not answer. Again, the high priest questioned him, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? I am, Jesus said. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, Why do we still need witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. What is your decision? They all condemned him as deserving death. Then some began to spit on him, to blindfold him, and to beat him, saying, Prophesy! The temple servants also took him and slapped him. While Peter was in the courtyard below, one of the high priest's maidservants came. When she saw Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with Jesus, the man from Nazareth. But he denied it. I don't know or understand what you're talking about. Then he went out to the entryway, and a rooster crowed. When the maidservant saw him again, she began to tell those standing nearby, This man is one of them. But again, he denied it. And after a little while, those standing there said to Peter again, You certainly are one of them, since you're also a Galilean. Then he started to curse and to swear, I don't know this man you're talking about. Immediately, a rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered when Jesus had spoken the word to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. And so we're going to pause there. We're going to talk about this section, and then we're going to pick up and finish the rest of the passage in just a moment. But the first point this morning is that the, the religious forsook Jesus. The people that you would most expect to be with him, right? The people that you would most expect to to know their Bibles well enough, to know the scriptures well enough, to understand who exactly this man is that has shown up on the scene. They see Jesus and they forsake him. And so the first one that we're going to talk about this morning is Judas. Judas, his betrayer, he associated himself with Jesus so long as there was financial gain. Maybe there was something to being part of the club that was appealing to him. Jesus, I mean, Judas found this appealing. But when Judas saw that the the cash flow was starting to dry up, when the social benefits of being close to Jesus were going away, he really quickly turns against the one that he claimed to love. And really against the rest of the disciples 
also. And we see this today, right? How often have you seen Christians? And maybe you've struggled with this yourself, but you see Christians that are, that are really excited, really enthusiastic. We're for Jesus. This is great. I love church. I love the Jesus thing. As long as it's going my way. Right? As long as life is the way that I think that it should be. As long as I'm healthy and wealthy and comfortable, and I'm really excited to be associated with Jesus. That's the thing that I want. I can, it's like this transaction that's happening, almost like a genie a little bit. This is the way that we treat Jesus sometimes. And, and unfortunately, this was Peter's predicament. And we, like I said, we find ourselves in the same situation sometimes where I'm, I'm there, I'm excited, I'm reading my Bible all the time, telling people about Jesus until, until the Lord decides to take a family member from us. Right, and then the mood changes in the room um, until I get that diagnosis, uh, until my career doesn't pan out the way that I thought it was and uh, thought it was going to, until my, 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 you know, my dreams are not turning out the way that I thought they would if I was a Christian and I had God on my side. So why isn't he doing all the things that I wanted him to do for me? Very quickly, all of a sudden, we're tempted the same way that Judas was tempted, that um, this isn't what I wanted. It's not worth it. I guess I'll take the bag of silver and run. So Judas forsook Jesus. And then we see that not only him, but even people like the religious leaders forsook Jesus. These guys, they, they, were, they were different. They weren't trying to get necessarily just some like casual benefits. Um, their problem was that they wanted to be God. They, they liked church as long as church was about them. When they walked in the room, they liked doing charitable things out in the community as long as they were getting the praise for it. They didn't seek, like I said, just kind of these casual benefits like Judas was um, from being in proximity to religion. They wanted the religion to be about them. They wanted to be the ones that were worshipped. They wanted to be God. And so when Jesus claims to be God, which he very clearly does, and we'll get to that in just a minute. When he says, no, 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 guys, I'm God. I'm the Messiah. I'm the son of the blessed one who is here to fulfill the prophecies, to make atonement for sins. This is going to cause a problem for the religious leaders. Because all of a sudden, it's in their face that there is someone else to bow down to. All of a sudden, it's in their face that this isn't about them. And over and over, Jesus has challenged them. He's performed miracles. He makes fools of them because of their hypocrisy. They try to do intellectual battle with Jesus, and over and over and over, he proves who he is. And so they are really left with no other option than to um, humble themselves, bow down, and worship the one that is God, or kill that one so that they can protect their idols, which at this point have become themselves. And so they take the later option. Peter. Peter was authentically in. Peter really was about Jesus. He was, he was excited. He was passionate. He was a little trigger happy with the sword and the ear falling off. I mean, but that kind of proved that he was serious about stuff, right? I mean, he said, Jesus, I will die for you. And when they showed up to arrest Jesus, it's funny because in the other Gospels, it says that it was Peter that chopped off the guy's ear. But we know that Mark, so Mark's writing, Peter is dictating to Mark. And in Mark's gospel, it doesn't say which disciple chopped off the guy's ear, which is just a little interesting tidbit there. But Peter said, maybe just leave my name out of that one, right? As he was dictating this. Um, anyways, Peter was all in. He was excited. He was, he was there for Jesus. We know that uh, Peter was a zealot. 
which doesn't just mean that he was zealous, but that was actually a group of people that were politically charged, that they were excited about a very real, tangible political revolution that might take place when the Messiah arrived. And so he was probably mostly expecting that or still dealing with some of the lingering um, worldview things that were happening in his head because of where he came from. But nevertheless, he was in until fear got the best of him. He was really excited, but he fizzled really fast. When things became threatening, when it really was life or death in that moment, fear crippled Peter's faith. Peter let fear become Lord of his life instead of Jesus. And so we see with each of these examples of the religious people that something took the place of the throne of their life that didn't belong there. Each of them, for different reasons, did not have Jesus as the king of their lives, the, ones, the one that they ought to have been serving. So let's keep reading. So picking up in, in verse uh, 15. No, sorry, chapter 15, starting in verse 1. Chapter 15, starting in verse 1. As soon as it was morning, having held a meeting with the elders, scribes, and the whole Sanhedrin, the chief priest tied Jesus up, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. So Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? He answered him, You say so. And the chief priest accused him of many things. Pilate questioned him again, Aren't you going to answer? Look how many things they are accusing you of. But Jesus still did not answer, and so Pilate was amazed. At the festival, Pilate used to release for the people a prisoner whom they requested. There was one named Barabbas, who was in prison with rebels who had committed murder during the rebellion. The crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do for them, as was his custom. Pilate answered them, Do you want me to release the king of the Jews for you? For he knew it was because of envy that the chief priests handed him over. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd so that he would release Barabbas to them instead. Pilate asked them again, Then what do you want me to do with the one you call the king of the Jews? Again they shouted, Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Why? What has he done Wrong, But they shouted all the more, crucify him. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. And after having Jesus flogged, he handed him over to be crucified. The soldiers led him away into the palace, that is the governor's residence, and called the whole company together. They dressed him in a purple robe, twisted together a crown of thorns, and put it on him. They began to salute him, hail king of the Jews. They were hitting him on the head with a stick and spitting on him, getting down on their knees. They were paying him homage. After they mocked him, they stripped him of the purple robe and put his clothes on him. They led him out to crucify him. They forced a man coming in from the country who was passing by to carry Jesus' cross. He was Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. They tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. Then he crucified him, then they crucified him, and divided his clothes, casting lots for them to decide what each would get. Now it was nine in the morning when they, were, when they crucified him. The inscription of the charge written against him was, The King of the Jews. They crucified two criminals with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by were yelling insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, Ha! The one who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself by coming down from the cross. 
In the same way, the chief priests and the scribes were mocking him among themselves and saying, He saved others, but he cannot save himself. Let the Messiah, the King of Israel, come down from the cross so that we may see and believe. Even those who were crucified with him taunted him. When it was noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, which is translated, My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, See, he's calling for Elijah. Someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, fixed it on a stick, and offered him a drink, and said, Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down. Jesus let out a loud cry, breathed his last. Then the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. When the centurion, who was standing opposite him, saw the way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. There were also women watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, the younger, and of Joseph and Salome. In Galilee, these women followed him and took care of him. Many other women had come up with him to Jerusalem. That's the second half of our passage this morning. So point number two is that the secular forsook Jesus. And we see this first with Pilate. Uh, Pilate was not a Jew. Pilate didn't have a great understanding of Jewish, Jewish customs or prophecy or anything like that. He was working closely with the religious leaders, but really only to keep peace in the area. He didn't really care about the religion itself. And he knew that Jesus was innocent. In fact, in other gospels and uh, in, in historical writings from the time, it's pretty convincing that when it says that he flogged Jesus, um, he did that maybe even as a merciful act. Because he was thinking, if I, if I flog him, maybe that will be enough. And they'll just kind of forget about it. They'll let him go. Maybe that will be satisfying for the angry crowd and they'll spare his life. So Pilate knew that Jesus was innocent. And really, he does try to help him at times. But in the end, the pressure of public opinion was enough for Pilate to forsake Jesus. And again, aren't we tempted in the same way? The pressure of public opinion, especially in our society today where it's so easy to get canceled for saying the right thing or the wrong thing or whatever it might be. We are concerned with what other people think of us. Pilate was concerned with what people would think of him. And he was worried about the, the opinion of the populace. And we see that the military, the soldiers were they were just following orders, right? They didn't take this seriously. They were joking around. They were mocking Jesus. They really didn't have an opinion of Jesus one way or another. He was just another criminal that they were to execute. He was just another person that they were to crucify. They were, in some ways, indifferent. And though indifference in a person's life can often seem innocent, when it comes to deciding you know, who Jesus Christ is, that has eternal consequences. This isn't the kind of indifference of, you know, I, I don't care what you get me at the fast food place, just surprise me. Right? This matters for an eternity when it comes to who we decide that Jesus is. C.S. Lewis said that Christianity, if false, is of no importance. And if true, of infinite importance. The only thing that it cannot be is moderately important. There's no medium importance when it comes to Christianity. The question is, what do you say about Jesus this morning? Is Christianity all foolishness? Are Christians wasting their time worshiping a Jewish man from 2,000 years ago who was crazy and thought he was God? Or, because this is it, these are, the, these are the options. Or, was Jesus who he claimed to be? And let's be really clear, he, he claimed to be God. 
Don't ever let someone tell you that Jesus never claimed to be God. Look at back at verse 60 when Jesus is facing the religious leaders. It says, Then the high priest stood up before them all and questioned Jesus, Don't you have an answer to what these men are testifying against you? But he kept silent and did not answer. Again, the high priest questioned him, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? I am, said Jesus. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. So Jesus says, yes, I am that guy. I am th- that is exactly who I've been claiming to be. That is exactly who I am. I am the Messiah. Verse 63, then the high priest tore his robes and said, why do we still need witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. Why would he call it blasphemy? Because he's claiming to be God when they think he's not. Right? That's where we get the charge of blasphemy. Jesus was killed because he claimed to be God. That is what got the religious leaders against him. And I, I love the, the flair for the dramatic. Like he tears his robe, right? The religious leader doesn't care. The high priest doesn't, he's not really concerned about God's glory in this moment. He's trying to get rid of the problem that is threatening his own little kingdom that he's made for himself. So the point here is that there is no in-between. He's either God or he's not. And he went to the grave because of his claims to be God. If he's not God, then Sundays are a waste of time. The Bible is false and you should find something else to do with your life. That's the reality of it. If we're not sure... If this isn't real, then what are we doing on a morning like this? But if he is, if he is who he said he is, then that demands that your whole life changes. And maybe that's the holdup for a lot of people today. Maybe that's the holdup for you as you're listening to me. That you, there's a part of you that's like, I get it. Like, I, I really believe that. But if I acknowledge that, then so much has to change in my life. And then fear creeps in, and it cripples faith. If we acknowledge that he is who he said to be, then all of a sudden there's a, there's a creator God who spoke the cosmos into existence, who rules as king over that universe, and who has provided a way through Jesus Christ for you to become a citizen of that kingdom that he rules in love and righteousness. It really doesn't provide us much of a, of a choice. We have two options. That's what Jesus leaves us with at the end of his earthly ministry and at the end of his life here in our passage this morning. But the soldiers, with their indifference, they were not the last ones to forsake Jesus that day. So point number three is that the Father forsook Jesus. Verse 33, When it was noon, darkness came over the whole land, until three in the morning. And at three, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? That's the darkest moment in human history. It's also the best moment in human history. You see, um, your story as a Christian is going to be very similar to the things that we have read this morning. There's a very high chance that there are going to be religious people that, that don't like you for actually following Jesus. 
right? And then those people are going to kind of abandon you or or forsake you. There's going to be secular people that don't like you for following Jesus because it's going to be clashing with their worldview. They're going to think that you're narrow-minded and that you don't love people and that you're hateful. And and so you're going to be forsaken both by people who claim to be religious and those who claim to be secular. But the difference for you, Christian... The difference for you is this, is that you will never face the third thing that Jesus faced that day. The Father is never going to forsake you. And that's where your story is different. Because Jesus was forsaken, you never will be. Because Jesus took the, the sin and cleared your debt, you don't have to try to do that anymore. This is where the story is different for you. Listen to Romans 5:18 through 19. So then, as through one trespass there is condemnation for everyone, so also through one righteous act there is justification leading to life for everyone. For just as through one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so also through one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. So we talked about how there's, there were these seeds in the ground for so long, and we linked them back to uh, the slavery in Egypt, but really we could go back farther, right? Really, we could go back to Eden. Because ever since Eden, there's been these seeds in the ground, these promises that the people of God had clung to. And they were, they were waiting, and they were quiet, maybe they were even cold under the ground, but then Jesus arrives, the very thing that we're going to be celebrating in December Back in Eden, one man's disobedience, his sin, wrecked everything, laid waste to creation, right? Everything was, was tainted. Everything um, had, had been touched by sin. And then we see that by one man's obedience, one man's righteousness, all things are being redeemed and brought back into order. Romans 6, 1 through 11 So then what should we say? Should we continue in sin so that grace may multiply? Absolutely not. How can we who died to sin live in it? Or are you unaware that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus, who were baptized into his his death, therefore we were buried with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in the likeness of his death, we will certainly also be in the likeness of his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be rendered powerless, so that we may no longer be enslaved to sin. Since a person who has died is freed from sin, now if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. And because we know that Christ, having been raised from the dead, will not die again, death no longer rules over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you too consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Nathan, you can join me at this time. So I'm trying to capture basically the entire Bible in just a few minutes so that you see the big idea of what Jesus has accomplished for us. 
Everything went wrong. A promise is made that a Savior is coming. We have a whole bunch of history that leads up and prepares the land for Jesus to be there, prepares the people for Jesus to arrive, and then he does. He keeps his promises. He fulfills the prophecies. He arrives and he makes atonement for people. As Christians, we die with him on that cross. And our old self is buried with him in that tomb. And like him, is the, the, when we baptize someone, like we're getting ready to do, which is why a lot of us are here this morning. When we baptize someone, it's symbolic, right? We're showing um, an outward expression of what has already taken place on the inside. So when we dip the person down into the water, it's symbolic of going down into the grave. When we pull them back out, it's symbolic of being resurrected to new life. That's what we're expressing in Christian baptism. In the, in the early church, they didn't have church buildings. They didn't have aisles to walk for public professions of faith. But they did have baptism. And baptism would cost you something. Baptism was public. It was out where everyone could see it. And it was your way of saying, I'm in. I'm committed to this. There's no going back. I'm going to be named among the people of God. And so that's what we're going to be celebrating this morning. There's two people that are going to be making their public profession of faith and deciding to be counted among those that are dead to sin and alive to Christ. So Nathan's going to lead us in some music now. Uh, I'm going to go get ready. If you're getting baptized, head on back. This is your time. And then uh, here's what I would ask, that everyone would just get ready to celebrate. Okay? This is a a momentous day. This is an exciting day. We're baptizing people. This is uh, evidence of of new life. And that's what we get to celebrate this morning. It's a day of joy. All right, so are you guys ready? Yeah, you guys awake? Okay, sounds good. I'm going to head back there. Nathan, take it away. Thank you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. You may go in peace this morning. Make sure to celebrate those people that got baptized this morning. It was so good to see you all. Thank you for being here.